and welcome to the weekly review with roman thanks for joining us today it's friday february 1st 2019 we're broadcasting live from mutiny radio we're in san francisco we're on ohlone land and we're grateful for folks for listening in today i am joined by otter tang co-founder of untold improv otter thanks for being here thanks for having me i'm so excited yeah absolutely i thought we'd start off the show with some richie valens um who passed away it was uh it'll be 60 years on february 3rd and la bamba was like one of these one of my favorite movies when i was a kid so yeah, um, there's a there's a great Code Switch episode. Not to plug other radio oh, no, shows, please, but uh, plug away. There's a Code Switch where they talk about um, La Bamba and what and what it means. That's sort of uh, under the theme of like national anthems. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'd be curious to hear about that for sure. Yeah. So oftentimes I'll start the show with a rant. I'm sure I will get into it at some point during the during the episode. A lot's happened this past week, as in previous weeks. That's also no change there. I'll also provide a trigger warning. Is that many of the things we may be talking about <sighs> folks might need a second a second to like kind of step away or take a breath i know i do sometimes even when i'm on the air so just wanting to start off with that i i appreciate that a yeah. lot so i thought we could start off you can talk a little bit about yourself about untold improv wherever the conversation goes uh we will find out yeah so um uh, i'm otter tang i'm a co-founder of untold improv we my co-founder april and i created a space in the end of 2017 um specifically for uh people of color uh our our mission statement is that we're here to serve communities of color that have historically been excluded or underrepresented in performing arts mm -hmm. and we do that specifically through improv um and and i could tell you a lot about our our uh the underpinning philosophy, I guess, um, but that's that's the short version. Okay, I, I, we also have plenty of time, so if you feel like getting into the longer version at some point or now, that's totally welcome as well. Yeah, uh, so Untold Improv, uh, the name itself, Untold, is about all the stories um, that don't get told. So part of that is just the the underrepresentation. If we look in film, television, even improv spaces. Um, there's not a lot of people of color and even when they're there they're often in tokenized roles or they're the only ones or you know uh there's there's just not the full range of stories that we know from our own lives yes. that exist and so we wanted to create a space that was centered on the stories and the experiences of people of color so that they could just be and safe space is like such an overused word and, and, and don't even intend it necessarily to be safe. One of the things we say in our statement to students is that um, we believe, one, uh, everyone deserves a safe space. Mm -hmm. Two, the world is not a safe place. Yes. And three, privilege is how much uh, access you have to safety. Right. You know, so even just being in an improv space, which I, I've gone through other organizations and they'll talk about like, oh, we want this to be a safe space for people to fail. Well, even how comfortable people feel failing depends on gender and race and the families they come from and all sorts of different experiences that right. they've had. And so, you know, I always thought it was a bit disingenuous to say like, oh, this is a safe space because I've said so. Right, right. Like playing, playing a lot of like lip service yeah, yeah yeah definitely yeah i've um i studied and performed improv for a while i was out in new york performing out there and then uh here in the bay area as well so i definitely have a lot of feelings and certain experiences and i also just really appreciate that there is more theaters opening up with that 
with your framework in mind, certainly just to serve more people. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, speaking of, of other theaters, I think a lot of them do a lot of great work and, yeah. and I'm, I personally like came through a lot of those, those theaters. And so I, I appreciate them a lot. Um, and I think in, in talking to April, both of us have had experiences where for, for reasons we couldn't quite pinpoint, we were just weren't clicking all the time. Yes. Some of the classes were uncomfortable yes. or there were people in the classes that were doing things and like no one knew how to handle it, including the teachers. And yeah. so it just, I, I pushed through, I, I luckily had, um, the fo- first group that I was in, like when I was a student, I had, it was relatively representative. Um, and so I felt comfortable to like continue through and I really, really loved it. And, um, April, meanwhile, had some experiences where she was one of the few women of color in the spaces. Uh, some of the things that were said were really uncomfortable. There was this heteronormativity through the whole thing uh. of like, everything is, oh, you're my girlfriend, you're my wife, yes. you're, um, yeah, that was kind of it, actually. Oh, my mom, right? Like, girlfriend, wife, mom. Like, those are yep. the three. Secretary. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, when I when I began improv, uh, I was viewed as female, so definitely I remember plenty of scenes where I would introduce myself as an astronaut, and I'd still end up like as their assistant. And I'm like, wait, what? Are you not? It's like, are you just not listening, or is there some misogyny that's over? You know what? What's actually happening here? And it was really difficult to to figure out, especially at the beginning, what was happening. Yeah, because you know all the astronaut secretaries that we know, like when yes. when they retire from NASA, yeah. they go. Sally and, Ride, famous yeah. famous secretary. Yeah, <laughs> Mae Jemison. Yeah, yeah. All, yeah so, uh, yeah. So, oh yes. So, okay. So, yeah. Whew. Okay, I got brought back a little bit in my mind there. So, just taking a moment for that, and just the the frustration in terms of. And that was like only, you know, one, one, uh, example of that. Yeah. I think, I I think that's a a reminder. Like, so as much as the frustrating or negative experiences are part of what indicated a need for a new space, I think we have, I have tried to create untold improv, not as a rejection of the negativity, but to just be centered on the positivity. I think it's really easy in my own life. I, I sometimes, particularly in the last two years with the news environment we've had, which which is to say like the world we're living in where a lot of the stories that have been happening before are just being covered more intensely. Right. That it's easy to get in these holes of, uh, of trauma and uh, hardship and, and just to center on that. And one of the things I, I recently had the opportunity to hear Angela Davis speak, and she talked about, yes, there's a lot of work to be done and our social movements aren't moving as quickly as, as we had hoped that they would. And there's also been a lot of progress and there's a loss, also a lot of joy and that if we only focus on what's serious and what's hard, you know, we burn out. Right. And so trying to create uh, spaces for joy. And yes. so I think that's one of the things that I really view. In some ways I view untold improv as kind of an activist movement and I don't mean that to like take space from activists who are like pushing for social change I mean it as like we're a space where people can experience joy Mm -hmm. and have 
their spirits lifted so that they can go out in the world and do whatever work it is that they want to do. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's And it's really important. And I know that for a lot of folks who have done improv, it really can enrich one's life. It's also about finding community and making connections and networking. And the great thing about improv is that like anyone can do it. So no matter where you're coming from, it's really ideally can offer a space for for absolutely anyone and i also recognize there's also like can be very much a drama therapy aspect to it as well for folks yeah and i i think what you just said about it being a space for for everyone is if, if there's like on one hand it's true and then i think on the other hand the the way that it can be set up sometimes does exclude people. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and that's true of, of any art form. Like, I, sure. I do believe art is for everyone. That doesn't mean that having literally everyone in one, one room is going to create the best art. Right, right. And so I think, you know, one of the things um, that's been in, at least in the news that I've been consuming recently, there's been a lot of reflections on um, integration, for mm-hmm. example. Um, you know, it's been about 50 years from since a lot of the the height of the civil rights movement and in, in the late 60s where a lot of the schools were integrating and all of those fights and one of the things that's been said about that is integration didn't necessarily enrich the experience for black students mm-hmm. you had these beautiful schools where black students got to be around other black people and uh, there was they weren't in a racist environment yes they wanted equal resources they wanted better textbooks they wanted you know to be funded right Right. and that's school funding is something that we've seen very much in the news all the way through today um but a lot of those students who did become the early people early you know integrators so to speak like had really had like worse psychological and, and physical health outcomes from from being put into an environment where they were surrounded by hostile white people i'm always yes. afraid to say white people because oh and say it i mean this show it's uh, i mean hostile white people are there any other kinds of white people oh i i recently i'm glad actually glad you asked that because they were like uh my friend at at improv last night we just had a class and and she said that a helpful distinction she found was like there are white people and then there are people who happen to be white mm-hmm. and like it's this helpful distinction i think she got it from amanda seals mm-hmm. um but basically that there are people who weaponize their whiteness Mm -hmm. and then there are people who are white and are situated that way in society. Um, And I think know how that, that they are, that they do wield whiteness. And so they try and be mindful of it. But um, not, I know, I think you were making a joke, but I I want like, (laughs) yes, hostile white people. They're everywhere. Yeah. 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 And I say that from, Yes, as someone who is white, that's, yeah. Oh, goodness. Okay. Taking a lot of deep breaths here. There's, yeah, a lot going on, certainly. So um, as far as with Untold Improv has, are there any surprises that you found so far in, or things that you were not expecting that have come up so far? I was not expecting for what we were doing to be so different from what other improv experiences have been like for me. Mm-hmm. We I, I don't, we weren't trying to like create something different from the rest of improv and 
in, in many ways, it's not. Like, it's a lot of the same games. It's a lot of the same activities. And at the same time, like, it, it is different. We've had, we had two people who had done a lot of improv and they ended up taking our class. Um, they, they were just dropping in for the first class because they wanted to see what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And they ended up um, staying for the whole the whole time so our, our classes are usually two months long and so they were just coming by the first class just to like check us out they had mm-hmm. seen us on Facebook and they ended up staying for the whole two months and and doing the whole whole course as a student even though they've done courses other places and when I talked to them about you know why why did you decide to do this um, you know we could fill two hours talking about what what they've told me yeah yeah but one of the things they've said is it's so different. And April and I sometimes marvel at that because we didn't intend to create something different from the other spaces mm-hmm. uh, in that we wanted it basically just like, okay, if we create a space that's for people of color, improv for people of color, then we can have the same experience just like without all the, the toxic whiteness that right. happens in some other spaces. And in the process, like in the ways that we built our classes, like we have, we go over community expectations and agreements on our first class and we revisit them every class. Mm-hmm. And then that's true even for our drop-in workshops that are only two and a half hours. Like we make sure that we cover that so that we've, we intentionally create a space for all the things that improv is, yes. which is a failure and connection and community and um, being silly. And, and sometimes it's just being like, one of our things is you have permission to be silly and to fail. Mm-hmm. And we've heard from one of the people who's done, who used to teach improv at other spaces. And he was saying, you know, I was really struggling with like, how do I talk about this with my class? And then I came to you to Untold Improv and you had this poster and you talked about it in your first class. And I was like, oh, that's it. Like, that's what I've been talking to my fellow teachers about. Like, how do we do this? Yes. And a lot of the teachers were like, oh, well, I just say, like, go look at our statement on the website. Yeah. And that's not always enough. Right, right, right. Absolutely. One thing that um, I think uh, Shirley had mentioned was in the class, there was something, an exercise. I was hoping you can maybe talk a little bit about that, where it was really, I think, getting in touch with like ancestors or um, doing that kind of work, which I feel is like so crucial and so important. Um, absolutely. I'm happy to describe it. And if you want to experience it, I'll, I'll even do it uh, for you, either live or afterwards. Okay. Um, yeah, one of the, our, our third week, which was just last night uh, for our current class, is centered on connection. Mm-hmm. And most of the connection we talk about is the connection to each other. But one of the things, I think as, as, as human beings, but particularly for people of color, is a disconnection from history, a disconnection from the ancestors. And that can be, uh, that's often intentional, right? And we can look at various different groups, um, whether it's people who have immigrated and, and um, uh, my grandparents immigrated from China and I've recently been on this like genealogy kick and mm-hmm. have been on ancestry.com and in their basic service, you get records within the U S and that's great if your family has been in the U S for a long time, but yeah. literally the farthest I can construct my tree using ancestry.com's resources, uh, like don't sue us. I, I don't know if this is, a- <laughs> uh, I don't think they're listening. I mean, that's just my guess. I don't know. Maybe they are. <laughs> um, it, it, it should tell you a little bit about my psyche, about like how fearful I am of being sure, like sued sure. by people. Okay. That's a whole nother story. We, we, well, we live in a very litigious country. So yes. I get um, so 
their their resources only go like uh, in the U.S. So I can only construct my tree to the living ancestors I know, which is to my grandparents. Mm-hmm. Uh, not living, they're they're um, they're past, but um, you know that far. And then the part that I actually would like to explore. Uh, you know, I have to pay for the upgraded premium global explorer, whatever oh. they call it. Um, and on my mom's side, I'm I'm Hapa, I'm, I'm uh, multiracial, and so on my mom's side, it's mostly British and Irish, but they've been in this country for many generations, and so, like. I added like one ancestor and because that person has already been connected to a tree is like, Oh yeah, you've been in this country since the 1500s. Wow. Here's, here's your, here's 14 generations or whatever it was, you know, seven generations. Um, and so that disconnection on the Chinese, like, I don't even know my grandmother's birth name. I know her anglicized married name. Mm -hmm. So I know she took my grandfather's last name Mm -hmm. and she has, an uh, American uh, first name. And so, like, I don't even know beyond that. Yes. And so that's one thing that happens, I think, for a lot of immigrant, like, descendants of immigrants. Um, I think, you know, we can talk about slavery and the intentional removal of names mm-hmm. there um, and how hard, and, like, sometimes not even recording what people's names were because they weren't even viewed as, as people. We can look at indigenous cultures where the records were intentionally destroyed. And yes, they were intentionally destroyed in the 1500s, but they were also intentionally destroyed in the 1900s and still to this day where they're not, um, you know, uh, tribal resources are in, you know, UC Berkeley has a, has a big collection of the local um, Ohlone people, which is also like, a more complicated group than, than anyways, there's a long history there, but like, sure. you know, th- th- like the people of Huchin in in the East Bay would like to get their, their ancestors back, their relatives back, but they're, they're in a museum, you know? So, um, <sighs> and we can talk about boarding schools and anyways, oh, yeah. I just feel like despite what I said earlier in this conversation about like not wanting always to focus on like the negative and the trauma, yeah. like it's real and it's there. Yeah. And, many people have been disconnected from their ancestors. And this right. happens for, for people of European descent as well. Like in this country, many of them are immigrants. They might not know, you know, I mean, so it's, it's, I think one of the effects of globalization and of imperialism was this idea that you should be an individual and having a specific tie to a place wasn't as important because you should be able to move wherever you want in the world mm-hmm. and just like take over those people. Why not? Take yeah. Like they have spices. Let's go for it. Um, <laughs> so anyways, that's a long backstory to say. Yeah. One of the things that we try to do at Untold Improv in telling the stories that haven't been told is to recognize that the stories of our ancestors often haven't been told. Like for me personally, it's not enough for me to go on stage and tell my own stories because for me, the stories of my father and my grandparents and like all the people that came before that, who I can't name, who I have no idea what their lives were like. Those are the story. Like those stories matter to me, even if I don't know them. Right. Right. And so we do this um, guided meditation where we have people count from zero to 10 and zero is them in this Mm -hmm. moment. And then we go back each generation and have them feel what it's like to, to try and connect to that. And I, I always preface this activity by saying you get to decide ancestors for yourself. You get to decide family for yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I don't often explain it more than that, but it, but all the things I've already talked about about the ways we can be disconnected from our ancestors, plus the more personal things, like sometimes our families have really complicated, our, our, our families of origin have really complicated histories yes. where we not might not want to claim everyone who has come before because sometimes that's hurtful. Right. Um, and so as, as a queer person myself, like, one, some of the ancestors that I really think about, like I consider Audrey Lord an ancestor. Yeah. Like she created space for me to exist. And I like really appreciate that, um, you know? And so um, trying to reclaim like the queer ancestors yes. as well. Oh, that's so important too. I mean, where so many of us were not raised by, for the majority of us were not raised by queer parents. So, you know, what does that look like? Especially thinking about, I'm not sure how old you are, but I, I mean, I was born in, I won't say too. Anyway, I am. <laughs> people probably, are, probably find out anyway. Anyway, I'm 38, so I was born in 1980, and so I think for a lot of us who grew up in the 80s, there, you know, there's a whole generation uh, who would be who would have been our elders who are also gone. So not right. only was there just you know homophobia and transphobia before right. then, where folks were arrested, or assaulted, killed, etc., but then there was so many more people who died, and those are folks who would have really shaped the world, who would have kind of guided who we are as growing up. So I think now part of our generation is now how do we do that for the next generation that's coming up? Who do we look up to when there's fewer people than there should be? You know, one of the things Janet Mock talks about is being an elder now and, and she's in her thirties. She's a black and native Hawaiian trans woman, writer, activist, uh, you know, writing propose and all kinds, like just doing like, uh, just such, uh, I, I really am an admirer. Um, but talks about being an elder and that's particularly in the trans community and for trans women of color where the average life expectancy is the mid thirties. And like, you know, so when we're talking about like, Oh, in this country, like, you know, 77 or whatever, you know, and it's like, no, it's like half of that. Mm -hmm. And so anyways, I'm, I'm on another tangent, but just to say like different people, the experience of family and what that means and ancestors and elders and what yeah. that means and what that looks like uh, is really, I think, very personal. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's, there's a lot, there's a lot there. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm thinking about just, you know, how far back, I mean, I don't know really far back past my, like I only really knew one of my grandparents and then, um, I don't know past like my great grandparents who they were, you know, so it was just, you know, folks who kind of escaped fascism and anti-Semitism in, in Europe and, and uh, Russia came over and like, there's not really uh, a history that we, that we know of for the most part, like only to a certain extent. So there is that kind of disconnect and yeah, it's like not, not quite being sure what is home and like also recognizing how many folks come here for a better life and then also recognizing that we're on colonized stolen land. So then what, you know, right. what is home exactly? Where does one go? Definitely. And and I think just as like a small tangent uh, of something I think about too, is we have this idea of land being tied to home, but I also want to recognize that there have been nomadic people for a long time, some of whom have area like land where like yeah they're always sort of within this this region yes and others of whom are were traders and so they were always you know i think of um always traveling around Mm -hmm. and so home home might have a different definition it might not be a specific place right right and so uh 
Anyways, I could I could talk about I think yeah, about these things sure. a lot. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. There's like a lot of places to go with that for sure. Um, so back to the specific yes. activity yes, that yes, I was yes, yes. trying you. to get to. Um, if you want, I can I can do it for you now if you're willing to like go through it. Well, since we are talking about improv, I have to yes and don't I? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I will say that in at least for untold improv, we always yes. say uh, challenge by choice, opt in, opt out. Like uh, you know, we want people to know that regardless of the activity you know yourself best and so you know when things are something that you want to do sure even if it's scary or uncomfortable versus something that might be painful or you know you're just feeling tired and you don't want to do it so i I respect that i i really i want to say that there's i sometimes see the tools of improv which i think are really intended to be helpful yes applied in ways that can cause people to do things that they don't want to do yeah yeah i hear that um, so I'm going to ask it again yes. so that you have a chance now that you know that like right. no, or maybe later yeah. are like totally valid responses yes. as well. Okay. Um, would you, would you like to try the meditation or would you like to do something else? Um, yes, I would like to try it. And I also am curious as to how this will be on the radio since we are broadcasting. Is it something that will be verbal that we will broadcast or is it something where I put on music and then we do it in the studio separately? Oh, well, if I did it, Verbally, folks yeah. who are listening could could do it as well. Ooh, um, okay. It is uh, it is guided, so it's not going to be quiet. Like I will okay. be speaking the whole time. Oh, great. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. Cool. Um, so then, uh, Roman, I'd invite you to settle in. Okay. Um, whatever that means for you, and take maybe take a cheap few deep breaths. I know you and okay. I have been having a conversation, um, so just getting comfortable in yourself and in your body, and and I'll repeat the what I said that this may be uncomfortable and also that you get to decide ancestors for yourself. Okay. Um, if you want to close your eyes, you can. Um, and I, we're going to count from zero to 10. So start at zero right now. That's yourself in this moment. Feel your body, your mind, your spirit, your heartbeat, your breath, your muscles, your gut. One, I want you to think about the people who raised you, the generation who came before. Two, I want you to go back to the people who raised them. This might be great grandparents, or sorry, grandparents, for example. Three, this would be your great grandparents three generations back. For me, this crosses the Pacific Ocean to China to, to people I've, I've never met. Four. Go four generations back. Five. This is over a century ago. The, those people who were, who were there. Six. What were the communities like? Seven. Seven generations ago. In addition to your ancestors, as in family members, who were the neighbors, who were the friends. Eight, eight generations ago. What was, what was the world like? Nine, nine generations. Ten, over 200 years ago. Whether you know them or not, you had family 10 generations ago, people who existed 
And because they existed, you can exist in this moment. I want you to take a deep breath. We're going to slowly count back to today. So we're going to start at 10 again. 10 generations ago, you had 512 genetic ancestors. Nine, nine generations ago. Of course, it's not just DNA relatives. It's also all the people who existed in the world that created the world that we can live in. Eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. Come back into yourself. Come back into this moment. Wow. And, and this, this can, can be a lot. So I'm, I'm interested in your reactions and just to give you a few minutes to a few moments to like breathe and, and soak that in. I'll say that we've had folks who have all kinds of different experiences. Some of them cry. Some of them are really happy. Yeah. Some of them, you know, they say I can go one or two generations and then it's this, this brick wall and I feel stuck and, and they stop the activity. They can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's also, um, there's folks who feel lost and there's folks who feel rooted. And so I'm, I'm curious to know, you know, how that was for you. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned earlier, like I don't really know past my great grandparents, like names of folks or what their lives were like, or even so much for my I have a, kind of a sense, but not, I feel like there was definitely a, a disconnect. So af- after going past, so if like my parents were one, grandparents were two, my great, great grandparents were three from four and above, I really have no sense. So I can kind of just make it up from what I've heard mm-hmm. and just kind of create it and imagine it. And it is reassuring just to know that there were, even though I don't have a sense of who these people were, what their names were, exactly where they lived, what their lives were like, the fact that they even existed, it's like, obviously they existed. Um, and there's something really reassuring about that, which it's surprising. Cause it's like, Oh, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't, I feel like I shouldn't be surprised by it because obviously, you know, I'm here. Right. Um, and at the same time, there is that disconnect that I've, I think always felt in my life where not having a, a sense of connection with ancestry to a degree and just being grateful that they, who these people were, they did exist and they do live on. And you know, we all live on through the people that we come into contact with. Yeah, I know Oprah, I, I quote Oprah maybe too much, um, maybe not enough, but Oprah has this, uh, talks about uh, a poem Maya Angelou uh, talked about, and, and I haven't been able to find the original poem, but Oprah talks about this thing that in um, Maya Angelou's poem, uh, Our Grandmother, she talks about, I come as one, but I stand as, stand as 10,000. Mm. And this idea of like all the people who came before, who, who stand with us, who are still with us. Mm. Um, and I find that oftentimes very reassuring. Yes. Yes, it is. Well, thank you for that. I really appreciate that. And I'm hope- hopefully some of the listeners out there also are able to participate in that as well. <sighs> wow. And that just feels so, I mean, I feel like with improv, it's also helpful to be able to, you know, trust the folks you're with in class and to, 
I think to experience something like that with other folks as well in the room, there I would imagine there must be a sense of bonding that that happens when you. It almost reminds me a little bit of a like a workshop in a way, or a support group or other experiences that are guided with a real clear intention, um, as opposed to going in sometimes and starting with exercises right away, but to really actually focus on oneself and one's spirit, I feel can be really helpful. Yeah, I think. You know, April and I certainly hope that it's helpful, and yeah. we also recognize that this that activity is probably one of the one of the really hard ones that mm-hmm. we do. Even though it seems simple, mm-hmm. you know, you sit and you think about things from zero to ten, and then you come back. It's often a very emotional exercise. I mean, I mean, even just watching watching you go through this, I could see so, some of the changes in your body, yeah, and and hear it. Um, in your breathing. Uh, and so even watching you come back, like it was a journey that you went on. And I think, you know, you and I did it sort of in private, uh, also on the radio, (laughs) uh, but to do it in a room with, you know, 12 other people for some people, I think it's a positive experience. And for some people, I think it's really challenging. And I think there's a lot of power in this activity and it's one of the ones that April and I talk about every time we do it and, and whether it's one we want to keep, um, or adjust or how to, how to do it in a way that, you know, we can send people back into the world Yes, and, and they're okay. Yes. You know, because for some people it, it brings up a lot. I bet. Yeah, I bet. I mean, just having that, wanting to offer care along with that, I think is really, uh, quite admirable and necessary. Yeah. Thank you. And I, and I want for anyone who's listening, who's thinking about our classes, this is a very small portion. (laughs) It might be meaningful. Um, and most of what we do is lighthearted fun and games. So I do want to, Oh yes. (laughs) Yes. Reemphasize like it is centered on joy. Even when we do these kinds of things, there's lots of joy that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, Wow. Well, how about we take a bit of a music break and then we can come back in a little bit. So I'll get back to some, got some more <laughs> Richie Valens here. And uh, yeah, we'll be back in a bit with Otter Tang. Stay tuned. Well, now my baby's just gone. I don't have no one on.
and we are back uh back here with otter tang um we've been having really great conversation about untold improv improv in general improv for folks who might not otherwise feel comfortable in other improv classes (laughs) so i thought one thing we could probably get into would be just teaching and how teaching improv has been for you yeah definitely i so i've been mostly teaching recently um through through untold improv that's where a lot of my energy has has been going i i i really like it um i i the name otter actually comes from when i was a summer camp counselor it was my camp name and so uh i think for me at least our improv classes have a lot of that same feel of that summer camp Mm -hmm. feel from from when i was a camp counselor and um so i I don't know what to say. There's like so much I, I could say about uh, about teaching. Um, perhaps would you ask me a probing question and then I'll oh, jump sure. off of that. <laughs> so something I've taught like a little bit here and there. Something I kind of am in more more or less like an anarchist point of view where I don't like telling people what to do. Oh, However, yeah. with teaching, sometimes folks want you to be critical or need some direction. So how how does one go about that? Or in your experience, how have you mm-hmm. felt the need to kind of softly uh, guide people? Yeah, so I'll talk about the first part about the traditional role of the teacher as someone who's, who's there telling the students what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, as I already said to you earlier in our conversation about opting in or opting out, yes. that's that's one of our ground rules. It's stated up front. And one of the things I do, it, particularly at Untold Improv, because it's specific for people of color, is I, I acknowledge one of our other ground rules is to recognize power and privilege. Mm. And so I always say, like, I recognize that you know, I'm a light-skinned person of European ancestry, mixed ancestry. I, I'm a man, and um, and I'm a teacher, and that gives me a certain amount of situational power and societal power. And I tell them on the first class, even on workshops, like I don't give me that power. Like, I, like I, you are here to learn and get out of this experience what you want, and that might mean leaving. Mm-hmm. That might mean um, not participating you know, whatever it is, like, I'm going to create the space to offer it to you. And at no point do I want you to give up so much power to me that you do things you don't want to do. So that's the first part Mm. about like just naming that dynamic. Yes. Yeah. And saying, you know, there's teacher student dynamics and like, (laughs) that's not why I'm here. Right. Right. Um, and, and also the, the power that I carry just from that society has given me by the structures that exist and, and, you know, if I'm going to have a place for people of color, I need to recognize all the different ways that people of color show up. So just because we're in a space that's um, centered on people of color doesn't mean there aren't power dynamics still. Right, right. And then to the second part of your question around, like, sometimes people want feedback. Mm-hmm. And how do how do we give that in a way that doesn't, doesn't reinforce power dynamics? Mm-hmm. So... Um, I call it side coaching yeah. oftentimes oh, yeah. and I will tell people before an activity begins like okay this is what I want you to do and I'm going to like provide f- feedback I'm going to like ask you to do things that are different um, not because of what you're doing but just because like I want to see what it's like yeah. and so generally by the time I start side coaching which is usually the second or third week of a class um 
folks are you know we've we've sort of like built that that trust between each other where i think it where it's okay and and i try to watch people's energy a lot and, and provide things that are helpful um, I try to do a lot of coaching that's excited mm-hmm. and appreciative and yes. because I do, I get really excited and I love a lot of things. And yeah. my first improv teacher for level one was that way. She mm-hmm. would just be like, Oh, I'm so excited. I love that. I love that. That was great. This yeah. and this and this. Um, what if you did this? Yes. Um, I just like have so many ideas and I love it. Right. And so she took a lot of the ownership of like, I'm asking you to do this because like, I want to see it right, as the right. teacher, not because it's like something you need to do, but Got just, like, it. I'm really curious. Okay. Um, so I try to do that a lot as well. And I try to let people get out of activities what they want to get out of it. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be different for different people. Yeah. Oh, cool. That's, uh, I like, I will think about that for sure. It's a really helpful way of looking at it. <sighs> cool. So aside from uh, teaching, what other things have you been working on or do you like to do? I mean, try to take the word work out of the conversation, but what, what else do you like to do? Uh, yeah. So I, um, I have a day job as well. I work for an environmental nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like that. I get to do operations for them and I'm, I'm very into that. I like organizing, coordinating, and I play on a recreational tennis team. Okay. Um, an advanced beginner. That's my official level. Got it. And what else did I do besides that? I love, eating out. Mm-hmm. Um, I love going to get food with particularly with other folks, uh, and just like having conversations. Yeah. Um, I've been really into playing the Nintendo switch recently. I don't own my own, so I just play my friends. <laughs> May I ask a question? Yes. I've heard of this Nintendo switch. I'm not really into that whole gaming world. What exactly is a Nintendo switch? Oh yes. Uh, so the Nintendo switch is, um, similar to previous versions of the Nintendo and that you can play it on the TV. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, it has controllers and various games. Um, but the switch is different in that it also has its own, if you don't have a TV, it has its own game screen. So it's oh. like the game boy uh-huh. crossed with like the N64. Okay. So like if you could take N64 games and play them on your game boy, like that's, that's sort of like the idea behind the switch, except it has like a full color, like mini TV screen. Okay. And then, um, it just has so many fun games. Okay. I mean, I've heard good things about it. So my experience is more like Tetris, Ms. Pac-Man, Dr. Mario, Super Mario Brothers 2. I mean, we're going back a few decades here. Pong, Alleyway. Well, I th- I think um, you might like some of their new games too. Great. I think we could find something that's that's uh, that you would find enjoyable. I, I'm a big believer that everyone can find something on the Switch that's yeah, fun. Sounds like it. That sounds good, and it's also good to have ways to relax too. I kind of look for that as well. Like, what are some other ways, especially doing? <sighs> okay, I'll say the word work, but like doing work that might feel. Uh, a bit overwhelming or emotionally taxing. Mm-hmm. It's great to have other other ways to spend time that can one can decompress a bit. Yeah, one of the things that I heard from someone about like their self care routine, they're someone who goes out and um, does speaking engagements, and they say that after speaking engagements, they will oftentimes schedule a dinner with just like one person mm-hmm. after they speak, and then like the next day maybe. Um, a book club or something like that because they know that for them they need to 
sort of like come down from the experience yeah. and like kind of ease back into the experience and like decompress in that way. Yes, yes. And I think for me, I, I similarly like after teaching improv because it's so much energy of, of like just putting it yes, out into the class yeah, and like yeah. paying attention to group dynamics and, and the energy of the room and, tr- and trying to facilitate energies from sometimes more, more serious things to more lighthearted things. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. We just had a really intense thing. So can we diffuse some of the energy? Oh, p- people are feeling a little tired. Can we raise the energy up? Mm-hmm. So all those things. And then afterwards I'm like still kind of in that like, very activated state where my body's kind of buzzing and my mind is buzzing yes. and then I have to find ways to sort of like relax and for me that's often like a good meal and talking with friends like in, in small groups um, despite teaching improv I'm somewhere between an ambivert and an imbo- introvert um, so I, I do get overwhelmed by too many group situations oh yeah I can relate to that I also like for some reason, which is interesting because I feel like I can be comfortable on stage, but sometimes when I'm off stage, like in a large group or in a crowd, that can feel like a little bit much for me. But I really appreciate one-on-one conversations. Yeah, I'm I'm the same way. Like I have very low stage fright. Like I'm mm-hmm. I'm very comfortable like being on stage. But for me, it's I think one, it's structured, it's expected. Yes, yes. and I don't have to monitor the audience as individual people. It's just like mm. a collective audience. So it yeah. almost is this yeah. like one-on-one yeah. thing that's happening. Yeah. And then when I get off stage, if I was in that same room with the same number of people, suddenly I'm going to be like, I need to get out. I- like- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. I definitely feel that yeah. and have felt that in the past. <sighs> so um, what got you into improv in the first place? Ooh, um, I, always liked theater so i'm mm-hmm. one of the people who came to it through theater i in in kindergarten was one of five peter rabbits in our classroom production of the children's book peter rabbit okay <laughs> and then um was into theater but like never really sought it out mm-hmm. um i could go into a long tangent about the way being a closeted gay kid and liking theater like intersected and diverged mm-hmm. and uh, we'd need like two, two, yeah. two to four more hours to, okay. well, you're <laughs> to, welcome go, to, come in, back. <laughs> to go into that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, basically one of my friends took a, a theater camp and I, uh, being like, a following the suburban middle-class kid route was also needed to do a summer camp. And mm-hmm. so I didn't have one and I did that one with her and yeah. that led me, they had um, after school programs during the year and that led me into theater and then um, in middle school. And then when I was in high school, I worked there with, uh, as a, a recreational aide um, in the theater program. And then in college I was, um, bored isn't the right word. I had a lot going on, but I was seeking something more than studies yes. and, and then academia and I, could also go on a long rant about academia, but other people have done it before me much better. Um, Bell Hooks teaching to transgress for one, mm. and um, so I I joined um, a, a theater company again because I had a friend who was in it, and I lucked into joining um, LCC Theater Company at UCLA, which was founded by Randall Park to create mm. space for Asian Americans mm-hmm. to get into theater. And other notable people who have gone through it are um, Ali Wong and Christina Wong. They're not related, um, but it, it was it was really the space where 
Asian Americans who were interested in theater, whether because they wanted to go into careers or whether they just wanted an outlet, Mm -hmm. could come and they could write, they could do theater, um, and they had improv. And so I got into improv um, through that in college. And then a few years later, when I was working, I was like, oh, wow, working is rough uh sometimes like it's not it wasn't super fulfilling like i I wanted more in my life um than just to come home and like cook dinner and go to bed Mm -hmm. um and fortunately like i i um you know had the resources to be able to pay to do other things Mm -hmm. Um, i I do recognize that um oftentimes doing things as an adult costs a lot of money and even as kids it's just yes. it was hidden it's yeah. hidden from kids oftentimes by their parents doing it yes yes um or, or their guardians whoever's whoever has control of money in their lives mm-hmm. and so i came uh, joined and took an improv class and that person at a, at a college like one of their extension programs and that person said oh you should go check out like an actual improv theater mm-hmm. and i didn't know they existed and then i took classes and um, eventually started performing and then I moved up here and started untold improv. I was in San Diego. That's why I said move up here, uh, up here being San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes me think about also just in terms of the barrier for improv would be the cost. And like when I started off, I was in New York, I was working full time at, ugh, ugh. anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and despite the fact that I was working at a place, anyway, that, I was able to afford classes and then after I left that job then it was like okay how can I continue to take classes so then there's like the work study program that a lot of theaters have and that in itself like although it can open up the pool to more people it also means that you're also working at the theater so you have less time and so I think it's also just the issue of like class which comes into improv as well like who has access to classes who can pay for them who cannot pay for them and then also what does that look like for for folks and then also I, I know some places have scholarships and at the same time it's still if we're living under late stage capitalism it's another barrier for folks getting into improv in the first place yeah and i'm actually glad you brought it up to, to take it back to untold improv when we were creating a space for people of color one of the things we um wanted to do for an improv space regardless like recognizing the high cost of classes but also specifically when in creating a space for people of color and knowing the way that wealth has often been denied or stolen or Mm -hmm. redirected from Mm -hmm. people of color in all sorts of different ways um and the how people of color are less likely to have access to intergenerational wealth and, and all of those things that affect people in general and specifically people of color in and um a lot of different ways so we created um, uh, we set Untold Improv up not as a business, but as a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And we also um, created our classes on a sliding scale. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and we offer full scholarships to anyone who requests one. So that's we've, great. we've um, in our first year, we uh, gave out scholarships in the equivalent value of like $3,000. And I think the reason we're able to do that is we're not a business. We don't have physical space. We don't have to pay rent. And we did mm-hmm. that intentionally. Like, yes. We're not removed from a capitalist system, but right. we wanted to minimize how much we were playing into the need to have money to support ourselves. And yes. so um, April and I both have day jobs. You know, We recognize that we come from middle-class backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to use that access to resources to say we can volunteer our time. Mm-hmm. So we don't need to be paid as teachers and facilitators. We, this is like part of, you know, what we're doing for the community and service. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
you know, whoever needs to come here, whether you need a payment plan, whether you can't pay anything, um, you know, whether you can pay the full amount, whether you can make a donation and help cover other people's scholarships. Like yes. we want to accept all those people. And we've been really fortunate that, um, so far through, um, donations, we're able to like keep covering our, our rental costs and, and things like that. And, um, you know, but it's, it's really important to us that, you know, we, we're here to, I think, serve the community and, and putting financial thresholds where, mm-hmm. like, you have to be able to pay a certain amount in order to come. Like, that doesn't serve us. Right, right. Um, and in doing so, I think we've gotten um, folks who wouldn't normally be able to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had people tell us that... Um, Anyways, I don't want to t- actually. I was I was going to tell you all the different circumstances folks have come to us, but I think one of the things nonprofits often do is be like, "Oh, here's all the circumstances that were really tough, and we're such a great nonprofit." So actually, I don't want to. <laughs> right. We've right. had really cool yeah. people come through, regardless yeah. of their financial circumstances, mm-hmm. and we've we've seen the spectrum of all the different th- ways um, our our capitalist system treats people, and we've oh, seen yeah. people on all ends of that, from people who have really high paying jobs to people who are going through bankruptcy or whatever homelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get the whole spectrum and, you know, because all those people are people they're, they're, they're welcome. That's excellent. Oh, that, that really warms, warms my heart to hear. And I feel like if more places could do that, it would just, we live in a much different type of world. Yeah. Sure. I think we have to overthrow capitalism before that happens, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's one of the themes of the show for sure. Ah, ah, that's great. So about how, um, what's the, the class, typical class size that you have? Oh, we are, are all over the map mm-hmm. depending on things. So when we first were getting started, we were like, please, like we will do this if we can get six people to show up. Yeah. And now we, um, have recently, um, been selling out. Great. Um, so we, uh, are actually reducing our class sizes for some of our things because mm-hmm. we used to have them higher because people would not show up. Yes. And now it seems like everyone who's signing up is coming. Yeah. Uh, so we try and have about 12 people mm-hmm. for our two month long classes, um, big enough to have energy and to not yeah, to be able to sit number. out if you want, um, yeah. but also small enough where you're not lost in a sea of people. Yes. Yes. And for, we have, um, free monthly drop in workshops oh, that's great. and for those somewhere between 12 and 16. Okay. That's excellent. And I imagine there's a, a website where folks can go to find out more info. Absolutely. Untoldimprov.com. That's so easy to remember. Cool. Thanks for that. So one thing I think we had we'd mentioned going back a little bit earlier, uh, I think there was the talk of, maybe it's even before we started the show, it would be about maybe like homophobia within improv. Definitely. Or could, I mean, could talk about that for a long time where this art form, which one could think of as being really open to gender expression at times sometimes brings up these really stereotypes stereotypes and like tropes that can be really uncomfortable for a lot of us. Yeah. I think uh, there's, there's, there's a lot that we could say. And one of the things I, for people who aren't familiar with improv, it's all being made up on the spot. So it's, it's not scripted and, because most of the things are invisible and anything can be true, it's often helpful to have shortcuts. Mm-hmm. Um, things that the audience or your scene partner can just be like, oh, I get what you're trying to say with that. So some yeah. of the things are saying like, oh, you're my girlfriend, pulls up all these societal expectations of what girlfriend means, and then mm, it's easier to play a stereotype than to 
create something new. And mm-hmm. so I think there's a lot of, so I was, I'll tell a personal story that I was in a duo team and, um, the other person uh, was figuring out their gender identity. I, mm-hmm. at the time, um, identified as queer certainly. Yeah. And I identified, um, as a gay man at the time, I prefer queer now as a statement of solidarity and, yeah. and trying to push myself to be more, um, to question, to question a lot more things than I did. Anyways, that's a, <laughs> there's a whole nother conversation there. Yeah. Um, so the two of us were both queer and we, uh, a lot of times ended up doing heterosexual couples. Mm. And, mm. um, I remember one practice, um, we both ended up giving each other like male coded names uh-huh. and, Afterwards, we were both like, "Oh yeah, that's like a thing we could do." Yeah, like we could we could be any of the things that exist in our real lives. Um, and so I think, yeah, it's I mean, even for queer people in improv, oftentimes it's easier to default to um, heterosexual relationships. Like I will see all male teams, and they'll have instead of just being a gay couple, yeah, it'll be a man and a woman, like quote unquote, like the, their characters will yes. be a man and a woman. Yes. I'll see all women team, and then the number of all women teams I see where like they become frat men, uh-huh. frat. Boys, oh, you know, and yeah, it, I've seen that a lot. Now that you mention it, and it's it's interesting, and and one of the things that I've like. I often use Hollywood as a proxy for improv because yes. there's more analysis of Hollywood mm-hmm. than there is of the improv scene. But in Hollywood, even with women directors and women characters, like we, we see that um, there's just like, we center stories on men so often that it becomes normal. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think um, JK Rowling writes a story centered on Harry Potter you know, and we can talk about the context of that. It was the late nineties. Maybe that was a different time, but like, also we're always going to say like, Oh, well it's the time it's the time. Um, and it's like, well, unless we act against the norms of the time, we're never going to get to that world where we have gender representation, where we have queer characters. Okay. Sorry. I'm (laughs) going to go on a Harry Potter rant because I've been reading the articles recently. It's like, um, you know, I know J.K. Rowling has said that Dumbledore is a gay man. And it's like, that is of little comfort to me as a gay person who grew, grew up reading these and, and really appreciated Albus Dumbledore's character. First of all, if he's anything, I think he's an asexual person. And like, let's talk about ace representation and like, that's super underrepresented. Um, but uh, <laughs> You can't just be like, oh, yeah, read between the lines. He was queer. I mean, that's... Anyways, sorry, rant over. Oh, no, that's okay. I mean, she's also said some transphobic things, too. So I think a lot of folks have been... She also created a whole system in Pottermore for North American magic in which she appropriates various tribal traditions and then Mm. centers the school on an Irish immigrant or a Scottish immigrant Mm. girl. Uh, with the help of a mystical native being who's not even a person. Oh, so, gosh. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's I, bad. I don't know as much as other folks about that. That was kind of the moment so. when I, like, checked out of, of the universe. Oh, goodness. Wow. <sighs> Take a deep breath there. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, queer representation and improv. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I myself have, and also as a trans person, you know, how often have I 
played a trans character. And like, it's also kind of like with real life where if I am, have a, you know, scenes t- typically last a few minutes, where is that time for me to out myself or to say, like very rarely have I played a trans person in a scene. And right. I think, yeah, it's it's that unusual thing. Like how does one bring it up? How does one be authentic about it? Is there, I mean, how, especially if you're perhaps with classmates or scene partners who might not get it or might not hear mm-hmm. correctly, you know, it's it's a yeah. difficult thing to to play, which is a word, word, word to use about it. But then, yeah, and then it's like, am I hiding? I mean, I've, I felt like such a shift in terms of when I was, I spent years and years performing, being viewed as female that versus now being viewed as male. And like, I'm identified more non-binary anyway, but how people treat me has, has definitely shifted. And it's just, it's been so bizarre to experience that. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there's a lot of questions around, you know, how do you have a queer character that I've seen a lot of queer characters that play on stereotypes mm-hmm. of um, the effeminate man played for laughs. Yep. Yeah. And, um, you know, there was a time, I think, like up into through the 90s where it's like, um, I, in college, I took a, a queer studies class and they talked about, you know, the ability, how reassuring it was as queer people who were closeted or just isolated to see queer characters, even if they were played for laughs, mm-hmm. because it was like, oh, they exist. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we had this long history for, uh, in Hollywood, basically for the entire history of Hollywood, where they were played for laughs and, and queer people were like, okay, well, I can see myself. I can see that that's a thing that exists. Like yeah. queerness is a thing that exists. Um, uh, you know, but now I think we're at a point where at least gay men and women, particularly cis gay men and women haven't somewhat of representation and somewhat mm-hmm. of complex characters happening. And, um, and so we're questioning more like, okay, if you look at Disney movies, for example, like so many of the queer coded characters, whether they were explicitly queer or not. So Jafar with his lisp and Mufasa and things like that are villains. Yeah. Like Ursula and the little mermaid. Yeah. Ursula was based off a drag queen, mm. you know, like a real life drag queen, I think divine, if I remember correctly. And mm. so it's like, uh, also Ursula is defeated by being penetrated by the front of the ship like if you watch the movie oh, no. the front of the ship is pointed and it literally goes into her abdomen and oh, that's how she dies fuck oh no yeah oh so um oh gosh oh. so when I think to take this back to improv when we're saturated by messages in the culture about queerness it's really hard to challenge those in two minutes as you were saying like it's hard to like i don't always know as a queer person what's what's an authentic version like view of a queer person in an improv scene because Mm -hmm. i don't know that we can separate it from the context that that we live in yes yeah oh goodness yeah lots of lots of think about certainly and then also just bringing it back to Hollywood with like all of those images and then growing up and how do you not how does one not internalize that like one could be raised by parents who are supportive and or go to religious institutions that are not homophobic or transphobic and then still with all the media that one consumes it's 
almost impossible not to take on some of those messages. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's Ava DuVernay who talked about how the link between civil rights work and creative work being imagination mm-hmm. obviously takes imagination to do creative work, you know, to imagine things that don't exist. But civil rights work is also about imagining a world that doesn't exist yet and about imagining ourselves in spaces where we haven't been. Yes. And so I think that's one of the links that I see between what we do at Untold Improv, which is all around spontaneous creation and and joy and emotion, mm-hmm. right? Even so I think we focus a lot in society around happiness. Like we should be happy. And I didn't want to create a happy space. Yeah. I wanted to create a space that was meaningful and could allow people like sometimes we're angry. Yeah. Oh, I'm angry a lot. <laughs> uh and so like let's have that. And yeah. and also one of the exercises we work on is um an exercise called I love that where we mm. love the choices the other person makes. Yes. It is so easy in improv in in performing arts to generate um engagement by creating conflict it's the whole basis of like trash reality tv yes right like all the real housewives are around like who's fighting with whom yes human brains are wired to seek out the conflict and to pay attention to it so can we stretch our our like improv muscles and practice being joyful and loving the things other people are doing um as a practice, not all our scenes are going to be like that, but like, can we practice that? Um, so we can see what a joyful world looks like, even if it's just for two minutes, Yes, you know, um, can we see what, I mean, one of the things we do at untold improv, just because all of our performers are people of color, like we get to see, I call it often the Hamilton of improv. <laughs> um, cause you just get to see, like, it doesn't matter. Like unlike queerness, which often has to be announced cause it's not, it depends on, it can vary how visible it is. Like sure, sure. obviously some people are very visible and yeah. like, um, that's, that's very different than being, uh, oh, I don't even know what to call it. Straight passing. There's complications with that term, but like, yeah, you know, less visible, like mm-hmm. less, like have the queerness be less visible then it has to be announced. Yes. Um, yes. but often being a person of color for a lot of people doesn't need to be an, uh, announced. I'm really light skinned. I don't know how people read me. So, um, sometimes I feel like I, I do need to announce it with like my last name or, or things like that. Um, anyways, that's another conversation about being mixed race and light skinned. But, um, yeah, I think we get to do a lot of things just by existing in ourselves. And we don't have to say like, we don't have to go into quote unquote, like the issues of people of color, you know, cause I think Hollywood's version of that. I mean, if we look at like where people of color win Oscars, for example, it's like drug addicts and murderers and people who are like in really tough situations. And like, Mm -hmm. that's anyways, there's like lots of really well written articles examining like the problematic nature of Hollywood awards and Hollywood stories and and how they like the limited roles that exist and yes. how they limit our perceptions of yes. people. And who tells the stories too. I mean, one thing I like about improv is that it's, you know, where everyone who's involved gets a chance to have their, vo- ideally have their voice be heard and create the content. Yeah. And Hollywood's like the kind of system where who, who is able to have a work made and produced. And then after that with the censors, where are the films shown? What messages come out? So there's like so many different barriers I feel. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we have something like Green Book, which is nominated currently for an Academy Award. Green Book is... The Green Books were a travel guide, particularly for African Americans, to know where they could travel Mm -hmm. and be relatively safe. Like, where can you get food without being harassed on your road trip? Like, how can you drive through the South, but also through the North and through the West? I mean, Mm -hmm. I think we like to think, like, all our racial problems in America are confined to the South, and I think... Um, nope. You know, living here in San Francisco, among a lot of liberals, particularly after 2016 and Trump's election, I heard a lot of like, I can't believe those other people in those other places would do this. Yet 10% of San Franciscans voted for Trump. And let's talk about the f- folks who didn't. Like, let's talk mm-hmm. about the 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 Bernie supporters, the Clinton supporters, the Stein supporters, like wh- whoever you voted for or whether you voted or not, like doesn't exempt you from the system of white supremacy right. and capitalism and all the all, like all the isms that, yes. that we have and you know I I hear people who say oh I can't like I can't believe we're building a wall um also how come we have no people who speak Spanish at our organization? Oh, we found another white person who only speaks English. Let's hire them. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, I see that a lot too, where people are like, oh, it's really important to reach out to, um, you know, we want to reach out more to the Mission District, which has a, a historic and current, you know, Latinx population. And it's like, but no one on our staff speaks Spanish and um, we're not going to hire someone who does. We're not going to prioritize mm-hmm. hiring someone who's from a community like that, who has the language skills. Um, we're just going to pay for a translator to put our survey in Spanish. Mm. But like our interpretation will still be in English and all of this will still be in English. And in fact, our, you know, anyways, I, it's like, there's so many issues um, and it's like, that's not viewed as racism because we think racism can only be done by mean people mm-hmm. with bad intentions, right? You have to be yelling at a picket line and, and you know, like pouring ketchup on the head right. of someone. Or being physically lunch. violent yeah. as opposed to just being passive and allowing the status quo to continue as it has been. Yeah. <sighs> well... How do you feel about taking another uh, music break? Yeah, always There's a good time. A lot more to a lot more to talk about, and we'll be back uh, in a bit.
walking down the street minding my own affair when two policemen grabbed me unaware they says your name henry i says why show he says you're the boy i've been looking for Took him in the lineup and let those bright lights shine. There was ten poor souls like me in that line. I knew he was a victim of someone's evil plan. When a stool pigeon walked in and says, Prosecuting attorney started uh, prosecuting me. Man, that cat didn't give me the one but the third degree. He says, where were you in the night of July 1953? Man, I was just home, just a
welcome back to the weekly review joined here by otter tang otter tell me a bit about your nail polish if you if you don't mind uh sure yeah i was recently uh at an event where it was all centered around self-care and they had a nail polish station so i have always loved nail polish but i actually this is one of the first times i've actually like kept the nail polish on after the event Mm -hmm. um i've recently i i spoke earlier about identifying more as a queer person now um i anyways we we can there's a long history in like how i've how i've self-identified around gayness and queerness um but i decided to keep the polish on this week and um as sort of an expression of like more visible queerness yes um and i you know being in san francisco for the most part got like positive feedback or like Mm -hmm no comments because it was just normal for yes. a lot of folks. Yeah. Um, and then I had the experience that I, there's, I went, um, to lunch at a fire restaurant that I like. And, uh, I was the most self-conscious I was mm. of my nail polish, um, this entire week. And I think part of that is, uh, so I, I don't really have, um, My dad passed away, and I I don't really have... My grandfather passed away before I was born, and I don't really have um, a lot of connection with the rest of my, like, Chinese family. And I never... I intentionally never came out to uh, my Chinese relatives. And uh, I don't know if I would still make that choice today, Um, but at least at the time... uh, you know, when I was a teenager and things like that, like it, it didn't, it wasn't something that I wanted to do. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of folks from similar backgrounds who decide, right, not to challenge, not to challenge that and to take the role of like, oh, like, are you, like, do you have a girlfriend? No, not yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, and that's one of the things about, queerness not being um not always being visible is that i had that opportunity like i I could make that choice which is not available to everyone um but so i was in this fire restaurant and i was just thinking about like oh i'm really aware of my nail polish like why is that like why do i associate the the vietnamese restaurant the fire restaurant is is mostly um chinese and vietnamese immigrants and like why do i associate a space like that as being potentially less safe than Mm -hmm. you know the rest of san francisco and i had to do a lot of introspection like no one there said anything like um you know i've also been um growing out my hair to have uh longer hair which is something i always wanted but i always kept it short because of uh, it's easier to fit in <laughs> um and also I, I didn't like the like when hair gets long on the back of my neck i didn't like that so i just keep it shaved back there now yeah anyways um yeah i've been i think because i follow a lot more queer people for a while i i followed gay men right so like in the news and media and stuff that was i i would say the group that got like visibility sooner mm-hmm. and now that there's more trans and particularly non-binary folks and genderqueer and all all of that that i have those folks have always existed but now i can see them more yeah and i think that's made me feel a little 
bolder and and wanting to challenge myself some of some of the ideas that I don't align with my value but I still it's values but I still find myself thinking sometimes and so wearing nail polish um which is something that I when I see other men do it I like like it and I also view it as often transgressive yes you know it's it still feels outside of the norm to me outside of what's safe Mm -hmm. and so I think for me doing it this week was a little bit of an experiment and um what it's like to live that and also to to become more comfortable in in who I am and 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 think about that a little more deeply in in my in my day-to-day experience um it also happens to be like Chinese New Year coming up so it's always a very reflective time Mm -hmm. to meet Lunar New Year it's it it is Chinese New Year and also um Tet and also uh, other holidays for other folks yes um and so you know it it there's a lot there and I think you can hear that I'm struggling to like capture the words to define the experience fully. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely is something else to, in terms of like, how does one show the rest of the world, like what we do, you know, with our bodies, and, you know, what, what does that look like and how do people respond to that? And unfortunately there still is so much fear out there. Yeah. And I think the world, like, it's one thing to say like, Oh, I'm going to tell the world. And then it's another to get into like the specific different spaces that make up the world. Like until I walked through the doors of that five restaurant, like I hadn't really thought like I have, I, um, I have peers of, you know, uh, Asian ancestry who are like very supportive of this, but like when it gets to people, most, a lot of the workers in the restaurant are kind of like middle age, like a little older, you know, maybe 10 to 30 years older than me. And so I view them a bit as elders. And Mm -hmm. so like, I was really concerned about, I I experienced this, like I wasn't consciously concerned, but like once I was there, I was like, Oh wow. Like I actually care what the waiters, the servers at a Vietnamese restaurant think of my nail polish. Mm -hmm. And, and I think as a, as a stand in perhaps, or like the, the Asian family, like mm. I don't really have at the moment, uh, elders, the Asian elders, I don't really have. Um, and it's like, I can't believe I'm in a restaurant concerned about what the servers think, but like also like that's the reality for a lot of people. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I do have a, a nail polish story as well. It's like, Oh, it's definitely, it's definitely feels like a, a bit of a reach. But when you mentioned that you have a nail polish story, I was like, oh, I've got one too. And I think one of the last times I wore nail polish, I was, I do background and extra work in TV and films. And I was an extra in when we rise, which was based on Cliff yeah. Jones's book. And this was a few years ago and I happened to be wearing nail polish and there is, is a very extremely large production and they had hundred, it was probably the largest production I think I've ever been a part of hundreds and hundreds of people there. It was chaotic. There was miscommunication I know that happens a lot. I get that. It's it's a complicated business. There's a lot of... Anyway, what I will focus on, though, is that although I was in the background, I had come in and I was, was wearing nail polish. Now, of course, this is a document... Well, not a documentary. This is a docudrama yeah. about the gay rights movement. So one would think that someone who I guess I present as on the masculine end of the spectrum, someone masculine wearing nail polish would be all right one of the costume people saw me and said, you need to take that nail polish off. 
And I was like, excuse me? And so she gave me, this is a very abridged version of it from what I recall, she gave me like a bottle of nail polish remover and she said, men back in those days were not wearing nail polish. And I was like, I was just stunned. Now, and I did it and I was like, okay, sure. Uh, of course, I was not even used in the scene later on, so I had pretty much had gone through this thing where I like altered my bot. You know, I had just taken off this nail polish because this one person who was hired to be part of this production had assumed that men didn't wear nail polish back then. Uh, wow, I'm so. Which and it's like, and this is a, also going back to our uh, conversation about Hollywood and representation in Hollywood, or even a film with uh, you know based on a gay writer. You know, his book with a gay director, uh, even with that being a queer extra in a film, you know, an extra, which you don't even see. I wasn't even used anyway, of course, as sometimes extras are not even used, um, let alone focusing on my fingertips. Uh, The fact that this person told me to take off my nail polish, I was like, wow, this clearly, you know, sparked something in this person. I mean, it, first of all, it's a literal erasure, right? Yeah. Not of you, but of your nail polish and, right. and what that represents. And of the people who, like, I can guarantee you at least one man wore nail polish in the 70s. Like, Pretty I'm, sure. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm probably one of them went to a gay rights protest in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think uh, that's a very safe bet. Uh, like, okay. <laughs> uh, but it's, but I, I think what it gets at to me, and, and I think what... So I think that thread that connects the, t- the two stories, like what I shared and what, what you shared, that, that I would say is the that in getting pushback from people that we view as part of our group can be worse mm-hmm. than getting pushback from people who are like, who we've, who we've written off already. Yeah. So, you know, being at what should be like a queer friendly space and getting pushback about nail polish. Yeah. Right. Or being it, you know, for me be identifying as an Asian person in an Asian restaurant, we can talk about the complicatedness of like pan Asian identity, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, I was concerned about pushback. I didn't even get pushback in my case, but like I, there was a article I think in the Atlantic this week about the epidemic of gay loneliness mm. and how one of the effects of the closet isn't whether or not people actually discriminate against you. It's the perceived fear of discrimination. Like I, like the closet is in my head. Like no one this entire week that I've been wearing nail polish said anything but positive things about it, Mm -hmm. but I'm still Mm self-conscious, you know? And, um, when I was younger with the pride flag, so this is, this is the effect of the closet as well. Um, I used to hate the pride flag. Mm. I love rainbows, first of all. And I was, resentful that I couldn't have rainbows anymore because then people would associate me with being gay. Ah. And um, I also was like, well, gay people should exist, but like not be so loud, you know, not be so out like, um, right. Which is a very like Madison society version, respectability politics, right? Like I think like the activism that I, by by the '90s, when I was growing up, like the activism that was referenced as good mm-hmm. was, you know, primarily based in like Gandhi and MLK mm-hmm. and a very uh, abridged version. and selected version. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, the we're all the same, 
you know, mm-hmm. we're all the same, just different version as opposed to like, sometimes we're different and that's okay. And like, sometimes we're imperfect and that's okay. Yes. Um, but I'm really appreciate that there's a lot of work right now around, um, I think I was listening to Ibram Kendi, who's, who's a scholar and anti-racist activist who talks about, you know, the idea for black people and I think for other people of color that you need to work twice as hard to get half as much. And we've just like accepted that. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we're like, Oh, um, well, we'll be exceptional. And I'm including, I'm saying we as in people of color, but I, I also recognize that that doesn't give me claim to like blackness. Um, but like we, as people of color will, will be exceptional. We'll have people like MLK who are, present the image of being perfect, you know, and we'll get half as much. And, and that's just the way we'll make progress except like, okay, it's been, you know, 50 years, like being perfect has only made people view the perfect ones as exceptional. Mm -hmm. You know, I think particularly for race, it's really hard. I think so straight people can have queer children, Mm -hmm. you know, without meaning to, it's really hard for a white person to have, a, a tr- baby of color without meaning to like it's it's that's not an accident that's that's happening I don't think queerness is an accident either but I just think they're situated differently we often make comparisons to racial movements and uh, you know queer movements as, and they obviously intersect there are lots of queer people of color um, but race and uh, queerness operate differently mm-hmm. yeah thanks for bringing that up it's... oh goodness yeah Wow, lots to unpack. Hmm. Huh. Wow. Just like letting all of that kind of simmer in my mind. Yeah, I know. And I think one of the things is thinking about, we started this around nail polish, right? Mm -hmm. Which is something that is... uh, uh, on one hand seems innocuous. It yeah. seems very ubiquitous. Yeah. Um, and then... And temporary in a way, too. Temporary. Yeah, and then and then to think about even whether someone feels comfortable wearing nail polish can have a lot of... a lot of background to it. Yes. Um, and I think that's the thing about... So I, I, I also talked about, um, you know, the pride flag and, and how I was initially resentful yeah. of it. And I think, you know, in the story that I, I stole, the shared, like nail polish is a symbol of queerness to mm-hmm. me in the way that pride flag is a symbol of, of queerness, you mm-hmm. know, more globally. And I, even when I came out, I think we have this narrative of like you're closeted and then you're prideful. Like you're closeted, come out pride, bam. Yeah. And I was like, nope. Uh, <laughs> that's not that's not yeah. how it worked for me. I'm sure there are people for whom like that might be a real like that might be match their experience more closely. And for me, I went through a lot of like, okay, I'm gay, but I'm not that gay. Mm. Oh, I'm I'm out, but I'm not I'm not like marching around having a parade about it mm-hmm. right and and so like i had still internalized all of these thoughts oh sure you know i you know if we talk about the queer culture like or gay male gay men in particular i think there's still a priority even now 2019 there's a priority for being cisgendered i think that's being challenged sort of 
the priority for being masculine, which mm-hmm. does not seem to be masculine quotation marks. Like, what does that even mean? Yeah. Anyway, mask for mask, and it's like, what does yeah. that mean? Liar um, for liar. Okay. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it's like, sure, you want to present like that's what you like, but like, let's question the underpinnings of why yes. presenting as masculine feels more empowering to or you. Or acceptable, and also the quote unquote straight acting. And like, if you're straight acting, you're not having sex with men. Yeah. Anyway. Oh yeah. 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 <sighs> um, and yes. I think there's there's you know the gay community often revolves around sex and the article the the epidemic of gay loneliness that I mentioned talked about like that hasn't made gay men feel fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And look, I don't want to discount like just being able to talk about the fact that like gay people are going to have sex is still a controversial idea. And by which I mean like there are still people who don't like that and don't want to talk about it, including queer people who are like, if we maybe just talked less about the like scandalous stuff, maybe we would make more advances. And it's like, well, no, like we should be full imperfect people. We should have that right. Like if, if straight people, if white people, like whoever has power, at least some power, right? Like if they get to be imperfect Mm -hmm. and have a lot of that imperfection forgiven, like, the like we shouldn't be saying like we need to be perfect to be, keep up with their mediocre folks yes like we yes. should be allowed to be imperfect and get just as far as their imperfect yes. folks and also who's to decide what's perfect and what's imperfect as well like where, yeah. where's the morality behind that yeah. And who's yeah who's saying what what is and what should be definitely yeah and and i think that i i will say that like that's a journey that took me a lot of time. And one of the things that, that I want to be really clear about is like, I hope my views continue to progress that if we talk in a year, yes. in five years and yeah. 20 years that I've, I've moved even further that I'm aware of even more things than I am now. Yeah. And I also like, I used to listen to people who probably would talk very similar to how I talk now. Like when I was in college, mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, the, the LGBT center on campus, that's unnecessary. Like, I don't know if I said it that extremely, Uh but I was like, it's not a space I want to be in. And and part of that was because, okay, this will date me, but like I was in school mostly during the Obama years, Mm -hmm. a little bit during George W. And I just felt like once Obama was around, this was really naive, but I was like, we're fine. Like progress is marching forward, long arc of justice, right? Like the inevitability, demographic Mm -hmm. arguments, like all of those things, Mm -hmm. like it's just going to happen. And besides those people at the LGBT center, two of whom I lived with, two of whom were my roommates. Yeah. I'm like, you're just so angry. Mm. You're just so, um, you talk in a way that I don't feel like I can be there. Mm -hmm. And, so I want to say one, like there was a gap between where I was and where they were, but it also wasn't their responsibility to educate me. Mm-hmm. Like that's something I had to take on for myself. So one of the, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but I, the idea I'm trying to talk about is like, I don't want to discard people who have different views or mm-hmm. who are, Right. Like we talk a lot about like canceling problematic people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like totally valid. Like if someone is hurtful, right. Like I have the right to be like, that's too much for me. Like, like there are people who my mom is probably friends with who like, I don't feel like I can be friends with because of what they've said around queerness. Yes. Um, 
but like, yeah, I do want my mom and, and my brother who's straight to like be friends with those people and to talk about me and to like use me as an example of, of queerness and to talk about queerness in general and like bring those people along. But like, that's on them. That's on my family <laughs> to bring those people along yes, because like yes. that, I'm not going out for the people who want to disagree with my existence. Right. Right. Um, and similarly, like I take that responsibility on myself for the things like, um, I am cis. So like, I think it's my responsibility to talk to people about transness. Mm -hmm. I think it's my responsibility to talk to people about Mm anti-blackness and how that operates. Like particularly as an Asian person, like Asian people in America have been situated as a model minority and have been used as a wedge to say like, Oh, Asian people, particularly East Asian, particularly people who came with money you're pretty close to whiteness. Why don't you, you, you can't come all the way, but why don't you come and get close to us and also look at like, you're doing such a better job than black people are. I mean, there's like this message of white supremacy that says like, um, why do we need reparations for black people? When look at the Japanese Americans, we interned them and they're fine. They're so successful now. Um, heck my doctor is Japanese American. It's like, okay, (laughs) Hold on. Um, I, uh, yeah. So, so I just like, uh, wherever we have, wherever it costs us less emotional work to yes. do the work. Yes. I th- is where I view my, is personally where I view my responsibility to yeah. try and bring people along. Yes. Yes. You know, so me wearing nail polish as a, a cis person, like, yes, I'm, a gay man but like it's actually of lower risk to me than mm-hmm. for a lot of folks mm-hmm. like um non-binary folks trans folks like all kinds of different folks like i can do this in san francisco <laughs> right i'm like i'm not like some kind of trendsetter but like if i can experience a little bit of discomfort and hopefully like create like edge out the circle of what's what's normal for people mm-hmm. right just by them seeing me with nail polish it makes the next person with nail polish they see who they don't expect to have nail polish maybe it's like more expected mm-hmm. right so <laughs> Okay, I'm not trying to claim me wearing nail polish for a week with some form of activism, but I try and think about like, what are the little things you and I were talking during the break about like, how do we continue this? And like, how do we challenge the system? Right, right. And I, you know, think global act local is something that I really think about a lot of like, okay, there's this global system of transphobia Mm -hmm. and homophobia. How do I challenge it in my local circle? Mm -hmm. And for a long time, it was by... First, it was like by staying alive in mm-hmm. the closet, mm-hmm. and then it was coming out and being like not too visible. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, my brother used to say that I'm like the most flamboyant person he's ever met. And for a while, I was like, I am not. And now I'm like, I don't care if you think I am or not. Yeah. Actually, like, let me be the most flamboyant person you've ever met. Sure. Because femme people deserve to exist, and um, flamboyantness is fun. Mm-hmm. And, uh, if that if I'm the most like then I'm gonna keep pushing the boundaries. Yes, I'm gonna keep pushing them so that the next, um, the next queer person you meet, you're like, oh yeah, like my brother's already beyond where you are, mm-hmm. so like you're fine. You're, yeah, you know, absolutely. And it's all about just you know living authentically, like and yeah, yeah, oh, and working to you know make the world better and. I'm running out of words right now, but I totally hear you and I appreciate what you've said and shared. Um, one of one of the questions that I might have for you, sure. which is something I think about a lot is like, how do you, 
sustain your energies, you know, and stay, how do you balance staying engaged mm-hmm. with, I don't, staying protected isn't quite the word that I want, but like, I think constant engagement, particularly in a social media age, yes, where there's an endless source mm-hmm. of, I often hear outrage, but it's, it's more than just outrage, right? It's like, it's pain and trauma and, yeah, and terror um, and terror, yeah. you know? So how do you balance those if you've achieved any sense of balance at all? Uh, I clearly have not. It's, I shouldn't say clearly, but I personally feel like I haven't. And I'm also wanting to, you know, move in the direction where I can. And it's whether it's taking breaks from social media, which is a whole other conversation to have where I can be more informed with what's happening and maybe hear stories. I wouldn't hear other places as well as, you know, checking in on friends and hearing what's happening with them at the same time when I'm not on Facebook, I feel a lot happier. So it's again, trying to find that balance where how do I stay connected? And then also, so it's really just trial and error pretty much where it's like having these days where I don't go on at all or I, really work to like okay i'm just gonna like check on messenger like who am i connected to through messages that i can read there as opposed to scrolling down and connecting to a lot of like activists and organizers on there so i see a lot of stories where Mm -hmm. within a minute i'm like oh i'm losing faith in humanity totally yeah so trying to find those times and then also recognizing there's also still a lot of really positive things that are happening like so Mm -hmm. many strikes have been organized Mm -hmm. and and folks who are speaking out so also recognizing that there's that flip side to it as well and also on the show when I'm able to try to find those uplifting stories and again like the positive stories are when something like I think in Atlanta recently or not in in Georgia there was supposed to be like some kind of neo-Nazi rally and it was canceled because people put a lot of pressure against them so obviously in an ideal world that never would have they never would have had to plan a rally in the first place however the fact that folks organized to prevent that from happening that's on the positive side of things so also wanting to, to focus on how people organizing is working and always has worked through people power to prevent more fascistic behavior from occurring. Okay. But now I'm getting like, Oh, uh, enraged about it. So oh, great. Um, well, exercise, <laughs> like am I able to exercise or bike, uh, something doing something physical, um, mm-hmm. is good. Connecting with friends, like one-on-one, just spending time, like FaceTime with people if I'm able to is really great. So just trying to also, work on I keep on using the word work I said at the beginning of the show I don't want to use that word and then I it keeps on coming up again finding ways to create the world that we all want to live in Mm -hmm. so what kind of behavior can I enact it you know and I'm also hopefully continuing continuing to evolve as a person with my behavior and my actions and wanting to be really mindful of how do I interact with people I know people I don't know if I'm an introvert however if I'm feeling a little bit more social can I maybe get to know neighbors or other people can I introduce Mm. myself how do I with my actions with my time on this planet create the type of world that I want to live in that I believe we all should live in so yeah doing the opposite of the things that enrage me about the world yeah one thing you said about getting to know your neighbors that kind of resonated with me I like I usually defer like if my neighbor says hi I'll say hi kind of a thing yeah I realized a few weeks ago like the one of the neighborhood kids was outside Mm -hmm. my next door neighbor and I was afraid to say hello like and I was just like oh wow like I I can't believe I'm at the point where I'm like waiting for a 10 year old to say oh. hi to me first. And I'm like, I've been there. Yeah. You know, but like, that's, that's where I was. So I, I'm 
trying to maybe be friendlier to the the neighborhood the two children in our neighborhood because san francisco has so few children um but it's um yeah it's it's sometimes scary for me still yeah oh i totally i hear that um one of the things that um i don't have you heard of a honey roast no. Is okay. it something you eat or is it something you do? It's something you do. Okay. And I got the idea from um, POC, which is Podcast of Color. Mm-hmm. It's um, for queer men of color mm-hmm. who do it. And they, they talk for a, a, about a lot of things, um, but they end each podcast with a honey roast, which Aww. is like the idea of a roast, but instead of like, like, digging into someone you uplift them and and you kind of do that and so that could be like the other person or it could be you know someone in your past an ancestor or something like that but anyways it's uh it's one of the other things and in the spaces that i'm in where we kind of go into these topics yeah we, we try and end each conversation with something uplifting Cool. Well, I can um, utter um, the fact that you and April have founded this organization that really does seek to provide space for folks. And it's just really remarkable and so necessary. And I'm hoping that many folks listening will feel inspired to join in and also for folks living in other parts of the country or other parts of the world to continue on that path as well. It's just really inspiring. And it's really about... I feel like it's less about what we say and it's more about what we do. And the fact that you're doing it is just really it's making, it is already and has already made the world a better place. Um, thank you. I, I really, um, I really appreciate that for folks who are listening untoldimprov.com. <laughs> and also if uh, there's not something in your area, I recently was in Sacramento at their POC improv space and they actually oh. said that they started it because they heard about us. Oh, that's great. And they and wanted to create that space. What's their space called up there? Um, I think it's called POC uh, improv okay. and it's a free monthly workshop and um, it's part of a larger theater, but I don't remember the theater name okay. at the moment. Um, well, Roman, I also want to honey roast you um, because I uh, only recently got to meet you, and um, in that short time, it's we've had some really good conversations, including this one. And um, I, what I get from you is that you really approach the world and your relationships with uh, a gentleness and a kindness and a desire to really um, hear and see people and to create space for them to say whatever they need to say. Um, and that's something that I, I really appreciate. Oh, thank you. I'm getting all teary eyed. <laughs> oh, well, thank you, Otto, so much for being here. Ah. <sighs> And yeah, it's almost um, two o'clock, so we're gonna uh, end up the show. Um, thanks so much for thanks you so much for being here. Folks can check out uh, Untold Improv. Ah, <sighs> uh, um, really appreciate all the listeners out there. Thanks to all the folks who um, support the show and listen. The show will be uploaded uh, later today. If you're interested in other shows at Mutiny Radio please check out mutinyradio.fm. We have open spots here if you'd like to do a show of your own. And also, if you'd like to support uh, the show, we have a Patreon up at patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. Really grateful for all the folks who contribute, all the folks who listen, and all the folks out there making the world a better place. Uh, Okay, I'm going to wipe away my tears. Tears of happiness. And we'll end with another Richie Valens song. And hope everyone has a great week.
and we'll be back next Friday. Take care, everyone.